0: Well, good morning. It is so wonderful to be in the house of the Lord together. Uh, And Pastor Anthony just mentioned in the video, but I'll say again, we are going to end our message time today uh, by observing communion together. So if you're watching online and you haven't had a chance to gather those elements, this is a wonderful time for you to do that there at home. If you're here in the room and you didn't get a set of communion elements like this when you came in, there are ushers at the back that can help you if you just get their attention or step back there. Uh, Make sure you have those uh, so you're ready to go at the end of the message today. Well, before we uh, get right into it, I think I need to answer the question that I'm sure several of you are wondering, and that is, where is Pastor Jim? Pastor Carter, what are you doing up there today? We didn't plan on this today. Uh, Usually I get to stand up here and tell you in the announcement time that Pastor Jim is uh, speaking in some amazing location today and involved in ministry and Uh, strategic part of our world or traveling to be involved in ministry in a strategic part of our world. I'm very happy to tell you today he's just on vacation today. This is the first, yeah, let's give him a hand in his absence today. This is the first Sunday in quite a while that he has traveled somewhere and not had to speak there. And uh, he was laughing. He said, when I go on vacation, I have to plan my own itinerary. I'm not used to that. Usually that's being dictated to me. But he and Sandy had a block of days right here in June where they could get away for a little bit. Uh, They'll be back late in the week uh, next week. So we wish them well. And as they travel, they're actually celebrating their 40th wedding anniversary later this summer. So let's give that a, a round of applause, too. We will recognize that on, the, on the, the week of a little later this summer, but that's kind of, this is their trip where they can take a, some extended time to celebrate that together. So uh, we really appreciate them. I tell you, uh, I get the privilege of working with Pastor Jim pretty closely. I have for a long time, and uh, I can tell you, he is exactly the way you see him up here on Sunday. That's how he is in the office. He is the real deal, and he is a blessing to everyone on our staff team, and I know he is to you uh, as well. He's going to be back next week. We will have a special missions guest with us next Sunday. And then the following week is Father's Day, so we'll pick up the Mark series at the end of June. Uh, but we're going to continue it today. He asked me kind of for that reason, so we've got a couple weeks off to just press ahead in the next passage uh, in the book of Mark. So if you have your scriptures with you today, either a, either a physical copy or on your app, we're going to be in, in uh, Mark chapter 7 uh, here in a moment. But before we get there, I thought... You know, since Pastor Jim is not here to do it, if he's not here, who's going to just show us a picture of Paxton if, if not him? So I thought I'd do that today. So there he is. There's Paxton. I, I got thinking earlier this week, I don't think I've ever heard a bad sermon that started off with a picture of Paxton. So I don't know what that means. <laughs> I don't think the logic exactly works that way, but we may be putting a streak at risk here instead of uh, proclaiming that. But if you don't know, that's Paxton. That's Pastor Jim's grandson. Uh, He lives in Texas. He's looking very dapper with his bow tie there. And uh, Pastor Jim actually showed that exact picture a few weeks ago. And he had mentioned that he was excited for me to see that picture uh, because of my love for bow ties. I had several people come up to me after uh, that service and say, do you wear a bow tie? And I said, do I wear a bow tie? (laughs) Uh, uh, You must have never seen me on Thursday. As quirky as this sounds, I started years and years ago wearing a bow tie to the office every Thursday. You say, Pastor Carter, that's kind of weird. And I say, yeah, it's pretty weird. Uh, But why? I I had some reasons when I started. I actually started it in 2006. I think if you'd have told me in 2006 that 17 years later I'd still be doing it, I would have questioned some of my decision making and uh, maybe not would have started it in the first place. Uh, But I have a picture that's proof. There it is so much less cute picture. I had someone in first service say, now, are these clip-on bow ties? Oh, no. These are the kind you tie yourself. Is there any, any other way uh, to represent your nerdiness than tying your own bow tie? That's, I think that's kind of how it started. It was just a silly thing uh, to kind of lean into the perception of me being the resident uh, nerd. And I didn't intend when I started it to keep it going, but it just seemed kind of every Thursday like a good thing to do And I just kept doing it along the way. I evaluated the reasons why I was doing it. I actually have some reasons. I won't go into all of those today. Uh, But from time to time, I've paused to think, is this something that's worth continuing? That's actually what this picture is. If you look closely, that's a Facebook post. And that was from uh, March 19th of 2020, which was the first Thursday that our offices were closed during the pandemic. And I woke up that morning and I thought, well, this is a conundrum. I'm not going to the office. I am working. Do I do I keep Bowtie Thursday going? Do I put it on pause? Do I, you know, what if I do it, why am I doing it? And ultimately I decided that it was worth continuing because I think sometimes we have traditions. This has become a mini tradition for me. I think a tradition is, sometimes if we aren't careful, a tradition just becomes the thing that we do because it's the thing that we do. So I really evaluated that day. Is this just something I'm doing? What's my motivation? Is my motivation pure? And I decided that day, I actually wrote a little bit about it that day, That. Traditions can be good because they give us something to ground us when things around us are chaotic. It's something that's predictable in a world of chaos. So I wrote a little bit about that, that there's things can be changing all around us, but there's certain traditions that help us maintain a sense of normalcy. And in that sense, I felt like this was a tradition that's worth continuing. I'm probably now bought into it more than ever before. So if you ever see me on Thursday, you'll probably see me in a bow tie uh, unless I'm on vacation. So So that's kind of a quirky tradition that I have. It's pretty inconsequential. Some of the traditions we have, I think if we think about it in our lives, though, we all have some of those things. They're the things that we do because we've always done them this way, and that's Bowtie Thursday for me. Uh, That one probably doesn't move the needle for anybody besides me, but there's other traditions that either we start ourselves like Bowtie Thursday or that are handed down to us uh, from other people. And some of them matter a lot more, but this question about tradition and why they matter and what they mean is crucial to the text we're looking at today in Mark chapter 7. So let's go there now. Uh, Verse 1 says, The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who'd come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus. Now, we haven't seen these guys for a few chapters. They showed up last in kind of chapter 3 and chapter 4. You may remember that story. We'll reference it in a moment. But they're kind of up to their old ways. They're doing the same stuff we saw them doing before. So they gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now, defiled is a strong word. We're not talking about dust on their hands. They're literally talking about sin on their hands. It's it's the outward appearance of sin that they may have come in contact with is what the root on defiled they're talking about. It's this idea of, like, really grotesque filth. It's not their hands are a little dirty and they're going to get sick eating, they're, they're concerned that they needed to wash the sin off of their hands before that goes into their body. And Mark gives us a little parenthetical description of what's going on there. He says, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions such as the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles. So when we dig into this tradition, it actually has nothing at all to do with hygiene. Again, it's not about getting the dirt off of your hands. In fact, the the Greek phrase there for ceremonial washing is pretty interesting. It says, they wash with the fist. And there's some question about what that means. A lot of scholars think it means they really get after it with their hands, pour water over their hands, have someone else pour water over their hands so they can really scrub their hands well, there's other people who say it's just they're very zealous about it. It's like this is an important thing and we're doing it to show that the importance of it and that, and that we do it. And when they talk about washing when they come out of the marketplace, again, it's literally meaning we might have encountered some Gentile when we were in the marketplace. And it would be really bad if we had touched something that the Gentiles had touched and then we ate because we'd hate to get any of that Gentile messiness inside of us. We don't want to have it. What could be worse than having some Gentile inside of us. So they wash, make a big deal about this hand washing. And so in verse 5, so the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? And they got something they weren't bargaining for back from Jesus. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. It's written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You've let go of the commands of God, and you're holding on to human traditions. These are some strong words. This is not what I would have expected if I asked Jesus about why are they they, or are they not washing their hands. But Jesus is cut into the core of the matter. This isn't about, this passage isn't really about Hand washing. What the Pharisees and the teachers of the law have done is they've developed a set of rules for righteousness. And they've created this construct where if we can just follow enough of the rules, then we can avoid sin. And if we avoid enough sin, and we avoid enough impurities, and we avoid enough of the Gentile world, and we avoid this, and we avoid that, and we keep the rules as a fence around all those things, if we can do all of those things, then we can be holy and righteous. And, you know, the interesting thing is some of those come from a good place, like a desire to avoid sin is a good thing. It's a good thing to do. In fact, this tradition of the way they wash their hands is kind of spelled out in some passages of Numbers. Some of this tradition is built on Scripture, and that is a good thing on its face. But the problem that we run into when we create these systems of rules that become traditions that we follow Uh, happens when we just blindly follow those. We don't understand why they exist. And that allows us to push these rules and traditions a little bit too far, to elevate them above where they need to be elevated in our lives. I think this passage shows a few of the problems that can come up when we push a practice or a tradition too far and elevate it above maybe other teachings of Scriptures. The first thing we see... In Mark is when we, when we push these traditions too far, we create a situation where we value practices above people. This is really clear. We mentioned the Pharisees showed up back in Mark 3. Y'all remember that story? Jesus is at the synagogue, and he's teaching and uh, on the Sabbath day, and the Pharisees are watching him closely to see if he'll step out of line on anything, and in comes a man with a withered hand, a hand that was shriveled up that he couldn't use and this became the focal point of the day because the the teachers of the law wanted to see is jesus going to break the law that says don't work on the sabbath by healing this guy's hand and jesus did break that law and the pharisees got so worked up about it if you remember that chapter they went out and at that moment began plotting for how they could kill jesus so they would literally rather have this guy have a crippled hand that he couldn't use then see Jesus violate their tradition. That, again, comes from, you know, the, the scripture, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. There had become all of these rules that fenced around that. Jesus violated that to heal the man's hand, and it made them so angry they went out and wanted to kill Jesus. So they valued the practice that they had, the tradition that they had, more than they valued the man that had the crippled hand. We also see a little bit of another way that can play out uh, in, this, in this scripture, um, when they ask Jesus, you know, why do your disciples not wash, the interesting thing is it doesn't say anything there that they were expressing any level of concern about the disciples. There's no indication here that they brought them water. There's no indication they said, "Well, guys, don't you need to wash your hands? In fact, they seem pretty content to just let it happen because they want to ask Jesus about it. So notice, again, they didn't confront the disciples. They said to Jesus, why are your guys not washing their hands? What's going on with that? Why are you letting them be that way? And what's really going on here is they're using this tradition as a measuring stick to measure Jesus against. And what they're literally saying is, yeah, Jesus, you're going around. Sure, you've cast out some demons. We saw that a few chapters ago. You've, you know, you're healing people. We see that. You've fed thousands of people, you walk on water, you do all these things, but what kind of rabbi doesn't, let his, doesn't make his guys wash his hands? What kind of rabbi are you? Are you who's going to listen to you when your guys can't even wash their hands in spite of all of these other things? So they've taken this tradition, this custom of washing their hands, which is, again, not a bad thing to do, pushed it to the point where they're trying to weaponize it as a tool to measure Jesus against and show Jesus' shortcomings. And that's not a good thing. Another thing that can happen when we push a tradition or a practice like this too far to its, past its limit, is we lose sight of the meaning of that tradition altogether. And Jesus gives a really stinging example of that in, in verse 9. You, little, words are on the screen. I'll paraphrase it for us, though. Uh, Jesus says, there's, you, you guys, you Pharisees, this is right after he's called them hypocrites and quoted Isaiah and everything and talked about the hand-washing. Now he's saying, you guys have a fine way of using your own traditions to dodge what God tells us to do. And it's pretty well established. We all know that one of the Ten Commandments is honor your father and mother. And that became a really important law for the Jews to follow. In fact, there's another passage that says, if you condemn your father and mother, you could be put to death. So it's very important in Jewish custom and tradition, and it roots right into scripture. And part of that, part of honoring your father and mother and not condemning your father and mother would certainly be providing them financial support when they're older and they can't work and care for themselves. But there was another tradition that had developed along the way that you could declare something you have as set aside and devoted to God. And the, the word is korban, or it looks like korban, korban. And when you declare something korban, it means it's kind of reserved for use Strictly for God. So, an example of, of how that would probably play out this is the only time in the New Testament where that word's actually there. So, there's a little bit of debate on what exactly this story is about. But it seems like Jesus is citing something that is very active and top of mind for that, for that group of, of religious teachers. So, if you had something that you were going to sacrifice, but you're not ready to sacrifice it yet, you'd declare it Korban. That would mean that it couldn't be used for any other purpose wouldn't use it to pay debts or anything like that because it's set aside and at the appointed time we're going to sacrifice it. Well, the tradition had grown in a way that allowed you to say what, what some of these Jews would do is they'd say, well, all of our excess possessions are now korban. Anything extra we have is devoted to God. And since it's now devoted to God, it was reserved, you know, for future use, they would use that to kind of end run around the obligation to take care of their parents. So let's think about this logically for a minute. We have a command from God to take care of our parents. That's well established in their tradition. But if we declare something devoted to God, then we don't have to obey the command of God. Is is there any further indication that we've completely lost our minds on how this needs to be, like that doesn't even make sense, the words coming out of my mouth don't even make sense, that we can't do this thing God commanded us to do because this stuff is devoted to following the commands of God. But we have completely lost sight of what the reason for declaring something devoted to God is. And the real stinging criticism comes in verse 13 where Jesus says, thus by doing this, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and then here it is. And you do many things like this. This isn't the only thing that they do that's like this. And Jesus is basically cutting right through and saying, you guys know that this is a move that y'all do. And it's all around them. So we don't want to lose sight of the meaning of the traditions. Another thing that can happen when we do this is it puts too much, too much focus on the outward appearance of people. You know, this is all starting from, do you wash your hands or not, and does that make you sinful? If I don't wash my hands and I eat, can I ingest sin and become less righteous? That's what started this whole stir. And Jesus kind of now loops back around. So he's talking just to the Pharisees, and now he loops back around, and he talks to all the people. And he says, again, Jesus, in verse 14, called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it's what comes out of the person that defiles them. So the outward appearance, the way things look on the outside, the way the actions we do on the outside, aren't the things that cause us to sin or become sinful. It's the things that are already in us and the way they, they come out of us, is what Jesus is saying. And this is an interesting one because I, I can only see... Your outward appearance. Like, I don't have some kind of spiritual x-ray vision up here where I can look right into your heart and see the condition of your heart. But guess what? You don't have that either. So you can't do that to me. All we see is the outside appearance. And it can be so tempting and easy. It's easy to read this chapter and go, well, I would never do that. But then when we go in our lives, we actually do some of these things. and when we overvalue, when we judge too harshly, use like the Pharisees did here and use, use our rules as a measuring stick for people and see how they live up on the outside, when we focus on other people's outward appearance, uh, that's legalism. We're creating a set of rules and a chart that you've got to live up to and we're going to evaluate you, not based on who you are, we're not going to see you for who you are, we're going to evaluate you by your outward expression of the rules often that we've created, the standards that we've made. And that's legalism but when we do that it's easy to kind of say well wait a minute if I'm doing that to them they're probably doing that to me so what am I going to do I'm going to value my outward appearance and I'm going to make sure I put on the best face I can in front of you and that's hypocrisy and we see both of these things show up in this chapter we see the Pharisees engaging in the practice of legalism by trying to judge Jesus against this tradition But then he calls them out on their hypocrisy because they're in violation of some of the same commands uh, that, that they are working against. And these are just some of the problems. These three things are just some of the problems that we can run into when we prioritize a tradition a little bit too far. Now, you say, good news, Pastor Carter. I don't think anyone's keeping score on how I wash my hands. We don't have any traditions that are like that. Right now, you know, no one's following me around and judging my hand washing. That's not a commandment of the church. You're right. We don't have any traditions like that. But I think the temptation for us can be the same thing that to do this, to do the same thing the Pharisees did, where they tried to reduce following the law to a set of rules. And I think the same temptation is there for us in the Christian life. We say, well, sin is bad. We want to avoid sin. So I'm going to reduce the Christian life to a set of rules that I have to follow, that I impose on myself, and then I impose them on the other people around us. And then, again, the same thing can happen, the temptation, some of those rules are good, some of them are good practices to follow, and we want to avoid sin, and a lot of the rules are maybe grounded in Scripture, but the trouble becomes when we keep adding to the rules and we don't understand why we added to them or where they're from was chuckling as I was preparing for this there's a few different examples I'm sure you can think of a few I'm going to cite a silly one uh, but my parents generation a few of you will will maybe resonate with this my parents grew up in a time where it was just considered by their church a really big sin to go to the movie theater and a few of you chuckle and a few of you go oh yeah and I think to this day, my mom gets a little nervous for my salvation if I'm going to the movie, uh, because you know the thought process was, you know, the stuff you see kind of gets into your spirit, and if there's bad stuff in a movie, and you see that, it might cause you to sin. So the safest thing to do is to just not even go to the theater. Well, that's a, that's a fine line of reasoning, depending on what kind of movies you like to go to the theater and see. But it puts you in a conundrum when a movie like The Jesus Revolution is out, right? So that has kind of fallen by the wayside over time, but it's an example of a rule that was a really big deal that, you know, if, if somebody went to the theater, it would be, oh, I can't believe they went to the movie theater. Uh, it didn't really have anything to do with what they were seeing, what they were doing, other parts of their life. It was just a set of rules that we were blindly following a little bit. And I think in this passage, Jesus is turning that entire system of rules on its head. That's really what's going on here. He's basically saying that following the rules doesn't make you righteous, and failing the rules doesn't make you sinful. Those two things are true. Following the rules isn't on its own, doesn't make you righteous. Failing the rules doesn't make you sinful. There's got to be something else then that makes us sinful or righteous, and Jesus uh, Jesus is going to get there. Um, but... When we first start to grapple with that, this idea that maybe my rules don't matter as much as I think they, they did, that Jesus is maybe judging us against something else besides this set of rules, that can rock our world a little bit, and rock the disciples' world too. So they asked Jesus about it. That's in verse 17. It says, after he'd left the crowd and entered a house, the disciples asked him about this parable. And it doesn't say how they asked, but I think we can discern by the way Jesus responded it probably wasn't just, hey, what does that mean? What I think maybe happened is I can imagine one of the disciples going, I really messed up. I didn't wash my hands. And I'd been in the market. I should have just washed my hands, Jesus. I'm really sorry. It won't happen again. And I had been in the marketplace, and I probably did have some Gentile on my hands. So I'm going to go do the ceremonial cleanse. I'll do the ritual cleanse. And uh, I'll catch up with you guys in a couple days when I'm free from that. Sorry, it will never happen again. And Jesus says pretty strongly on uh, verse 18 he says are you so dull he asked i mean can you imagine jesus saying that to you that would be would be kind of get your attention as well he says are you so dull don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them for it doesn't go into their heart it goes in their stomach and then out of the body and in saying this jesus declared all foods clean now let's be clear this is talking about food we're back in the hand washing thing He's talking about he's talking about food. We do need to guard our hearts and minds from the things that come in, but we don't need to worry about what we eat. And even, you know, what we eat and what we touch might make us sick, but it's not going to make us sinful, right? It's, it might make you sick. It's not going to make you sinful. And even if you did eat that, it, Jesus basically says it's a little, little gross to think about, but it's gone in a couple of days. It's not with you for very long, even if it did. So... <clears throat> uh, what, where does the sin come from then? And then that's the crux of this whole passage is down here in verse 21. And Jesus says, for it's from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. And it's, that's it, the condition of our heart is what matters the most. It matters more than how we follow tradition. It's 100% about the condition of our heart. And here's, A really tough part of this text is next. It says, he lists all these sins. uh, Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly. All these evils come from inside a person. They all come from inside. They're already there. It was about ten years ago uh, that I first became familiar with the work and the writings of Dr. Matthew Stanford. Uh, he's a professor at Baylor University, and he's written some books. He talks about the relationship between psychology and biology. He's a scientific prose, but he's also a theologian. And he talks a lot about the biology of sin, which is a really interesting topic uh, to think about. And he said something at an event talking about that very topic, giving a talk about the biology of sin, which I'm a science guy. I, I have a math degree, I have a a physical science minor. I had never really considered the biology of sin before I started studying some of his his work. Uh, But he said something at that event that has stuck with me, and it's not really a biological statement as much as it's a theological statement. But uh, I don't have the direct quote, so I'm gonna paraphrase him. But he said, you know, we evangelicals, he's Baptist, uh, but he was ironically speaking to a room full of mostly Pentecostals at that event. We evangelicals have a tendency to think that we're sinners because we sin. That the things that we do, the sins we commit, make us a sinner. And that leads us down this path of believing that if I just work hard enough, if I just do enough things, if I can just separate myself from sin enough, then I won't be a sinner anymore. If I can just remove myself from this outward expression of my sin then that changes the inside of me so I'm not a sinner. And Dr. Stanford says, I believe we have that exactly backwards. You see, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Think about that. It's deep inside of who we are. And that's what Jesus says in this same passage. So if we ever want to confront our sin problem, we have to start with the fact that we're already sinners and we can't help ourselves. And this feels a little hopeless to say we can't help ourselves. But if we could help ourselves, we wouldn't need Jesus' work on the cross, right? We could just take care of it ourselves, but we can't. So that's why Jesus needed to come and die and forgive our sins and then start a work in us. Uh, I think this plays out, we'll play this out in some practical ways. Um, This is an uncomfortable one to talk about, but in a crowd of this size, uh, statistics would tell us that more than a few people in this room have looked at pornography. And let's be real, Pornography is bad. It's a sin, it's terrible. If you're engaged in looking at pornography, you should stop. And you need the, you, you're in sin and you need to take steps to change that in your life. And, but I've talked to several people who struggle with that because it's pretty pervasive in our world. And when I've worked, talked to them pastorally, inevitably, the conversation often starts like this. They say, well, pastor, I have this problem with porn, and I'm working really hard to change it. But when I look at porn, it makes me feel feelings of lust. It makes me sin, you know, and have lust in my heart. So I'm doing all these things in my life to try and put roadblocks between me and viewing the pornography. You know, you stop the, stop the internet at my house, and have filters on my phone, and have accountability partners and all of these things I'm doing because if I can get enough roadblocks between me and the pornography, then the lust in my heart can be corrected because I'm not looking at porn. Well, Dr. Stanford would say, again, this is exactly backwards, you don't have a problem with lust because you look at porn. If you're struggling with porn, there's already lust in your heart that's driving that behavior. And if you ever want to be able to address it, which you need to do all of those things you're doing, but that's not all you need to do. You need to address the heart condition that underlies it. And by addressing that heart condition that underlies it, you will begin to feel success in the roadblocks and the outward behavior. I'll make it a little more personal. Uh, My thing isn't porn. Uh, My thing is, uh, I have a temper. I'm a little embarrassed to say that uh, out loud, Um, but I have a temper. And some of you in this room are going, really? And some of you are going, well, that's an understatement. (laughs) And uh, uh, if that's you today, I'm I'm terribly sorry. I think I've made amends for a lot of the people uh, that I've hurt along the way. But I've struggled with this for years. Uh, I struggled with it for a really, really long time. And I used to think the same kind of thinking that, if I can just do enough things, if I can just put enough distance between me and these angry outbursts, then I can correct this anger problem that's inside of me. And so I would, you know, do breathing, you know, do breathing exercises, I would think I just need to start counting sooner, <laughs> right? <laughs> count higher, <laughs> count more, uh, and, and do all of these things that I would do to try and remain calm on the outside even though I was raging mad on the inside. And guess what, none of that worked on its own. But it was this quote from Dr. Stanford that actually helped me get down further in a journey of realizing the outbursts of anger aren't, aren't, like I'm not angry inside because I have these outbursts, I have these outbursts because I'm angry inside and there's stuff in my heart that I've got to deal with. And guess what, that is not pleasant. I had to go dig through and I, I was carrying some hurt and some depression, I had a lot going on. And guess what? It's still a struggle. I feel largely removed from a lot of that, but I still have to watch myself all the time because that's the thing uh, that I feel like I'm predisposed to. And I think all of us in this room, if you really evaluate it, there's a thing that you're predisposed to. And it's not that you can control that behavior and fix the thing. You've got to dig into your heart and, and see what this is. Well, you say, how do I do that, Pastor Carter? I don't know how to do that. I don't think I can do that by... Myself, well, I'm here to tell you, you're exactly right. You can't do it by yourself. Because if you could do it by yourself, again, we wouldn't need Jesus' work on the cross. But when we accept Jesus, two things happen for us. The first is that all of the sins we've committed are covered by Jesus' blood. We're forgiven. And in that moment, we're justified to a right standing with God. We're 100% saved the moment that we're saved. But... The other thing that happens is we kick off what's a lifelong process of yielding our lives to Him to become more and more Christ-like. And that's what the work of the Holy Spirit does in us. You know, if I want to change the outside, I can't change the outside by myself. I have to change the inside first. I sometimes think of it like this. If I had a recipe I like to cook, if I had a recipe that called for red, delicious apples, but all I had were Granny Smith's, I could call in the best spray paint artist around to try and make that apple look like a red delicious on the outside. But when I cut into it, all it's going to taste like is spray paint and Granny Smith. Right? It's still going to be tart. The inside's not going to be any different at all, no matter what I do to the outside. If I want that to be different, I have to go get other fruit. Right? I have to get a different piece of fruit. I have to replace the bad fruit with good fruit. It's interesting, if you look in the book of Galatians where Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, there is a list of the desires of the flesh that almost exactly mirrors this passage, this list that Jesus read. But Praise God, by the work of His Holy Spirit in us, these things that pre-exist in our heart can be replaced by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness, self-control, all the fruits of the Spirit can become at work in us. But it's by the Spirit, it's not by anything uh, that we do. Paul talks about this in Romans uh, chapter eight. He says, uh, if you live according to the flesh, the outside stuff, if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit, not by our own works, but by the Spirit, you put to death the misdeeds of the body, then you will live. It's the Spirit that works in us to make that change. You say, how can I open myself to that work of the Spirit? I think one of the important ways we do that is by engaging the spiritual disciplines, by reading the Bible. But don't just read the Bible to check that box and have that outward hypocritical look. Don't say, you know, it's not the tradition of reading the Bible that helps the Spirit work in us. It's... It's studying the word and letting it speak to us, letting God speak to us through his word, internalizing it, memorizing some of it, and then letting it influence the way that we think and behave, not just checking a traditional box, but letting it infiltrate our heart. The same thing with our prayer lives. Same thing with accountability. Don't just have accountability for the appearance of accountability. Really get in there and share with the people around you and have discipleship and fellowship together, and it's as we give ourselves to these things, God's Spirit's God's Spirit works in us and changes us deep inside our heart. Isn't that great? Romans 6, verse 17 says, Thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, we used to be slaves to our sinful nature, these things that pre exist in our heart. But you've come to obey from your heart, deep inside. The pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance, Those is kind of a wordy way to say it, but it's saying it's not just a teaching. It's not just a tradition. It's become part of us. We've internalized that, and now we're loyal to it. It's not something we learn. It's something we're loyal to, and it's part of who we are. You've been set free from sin, and you've become slaves to righteousness. Aren't you glad that we can let God's Spirit work in us and turn our back on that sin, and work on us from the inside out, and be bound to sin as the uh, bound to righteousness instead of our sin.